Hello, this is episode 271 and in it I am talking with Anthea Maynard who is the Dilapidation Manager and Senior Building Consultant at Melbourne-based consulting business BSS Group and we are discussing dilapidation reports. Now for many I know the first time that you even hear of a dilapidation report can be when you see it as a condition of your development approval to actually commission one for the neighbouring properties around your home before you renovate or build. Or you may be super concerned about a neighbour complaining that your project's going to potentially damage theirs. Or you may also suddenly see that your neighbour is commencing a project and they've done nothing to consult you and you're concerned about the potential damage that it might cause to your property. This is where dilapidation reports come in. So I'm really looking forward to sharing this episode with you and getting Anthea's help to explain them further. Now, if you'd like to grab a full transcript of this episode, plus information on the resources that we discuss, you can do that by heading to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 271. That's the numbers 271. Now let's dive in. I begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of country throughout Australia, and I recognise the continuing connection to lands, waters, skies and communities. I pay my respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to elders both past and present. If we haven't met before, I'm Amelia Lee. Based in northern New South Wales, Australia, I'm a wife, mum and architect, and I've worked in the architectural industry for over 27 years now. Having worked on over 250 projects, mainly residential family homes, as well as significantly renovating three homes of my own with my hubby, whilst our three kids were babies, toddlers and even older, I have a personal and professional understanding of the joy, challenges, stresses and excitement of making your family home a reality. In mid-2014, I started Undercover Architect, and it's an online business to help and teach homeowners like you how to get it right when designing, building and renovating your family home. Undercover Architect is all about giving you access to the industry knowledge and insights you need to avoid the mistakes and dramas that can cost you thousands, tens of thousands and even hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it's about levelling the playing field so that the world of renovating and building doesn't seem so mysterious and you can be the active driver in your project, navigating it with know-how and confidence. Undercover Architect helps and teaches homeowners through this podcast, the website and our online courses and programs, including my flagship program, Home Method. I truly believe that when you know the questions to ask, the steps to take and the best way to create a home that works, feels great and that you feel great in, you can enjoy the process of building and renovating, as well as the home that you move into at the end of this ambitious journey. Consider Undercover Architect your secret ally, whoever you're working with and whatever your location, your budget or your dreams. Grab access to my free online workshop, Your Project Plan, and learn super helpful information to save time, money and stress in your reno or new build. You can find it at undercoverarchitect.com forward slash project plan. That's P-R-O-J-E-C-T-P-L-A-N. Now, let's get on to the episode. Before we jump into the conversation in this episode, let me share with you a little more info about BSS Group 
and my guest, Anthea Maynard. Now, my guest, Anthea, moved to Australia from New Zealand as a teenager and initially began her tertiary education in journalism and public relations. However, drawn by a love of the built environment, she went on to study building design and technology at RMIT. And this then led her to having building design roles in a range of architectural practices, as well as her own drafting business, whilst developing a huge range of creative, practical and technical skills in building design and construction. Anthea has been with the BSS Group since 2015, and the BSS Group is an award-winning building and engineering consultancy firm, renowned for providing independent advice to owners, developers and builders on construction matters. And their Melbourne-based team comprises building consultants, engineers and architects. In Anthea's current role as dilapidation manager and senior building consultant, she manages a team of professionals and surveys property conditions for a variety of clients, ranging from protection works for builders through to some of Victoria's largest infrastructure projects. So if you are wanting to learn more about dilapidation reports, what they are and when you need one, this episode is going to be super helpful for you. Remember too that you can download a free PDF transcript of this episode and links to all of the resources we mention, as well as a sample dilapidation report report that Anthea has actually shared with me. You can grab all of those things by heading to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 271. That's the numbers 271. Let's jump into my conversation with Anthea now. Well, Anthea, it is awesome to have you here. This is actually take two because I uh, didn't hit record and managed to catch it in just the right amount of time. So we didn't get too far into the conversation, but I know that the knowledge that you have and the experience that you have in the topic we're discussing today, which is dilapidation reports, is going to be super helpful for the undercover architect community. I get lots of questions about dilapidation reports, why they matter, when people need to worry about them, and people are obviously getting them conditioned as part of their council approvals as well. So I know this is going to be a really fantastic conversation. Before we dive in, can I get you just to share a little bit about yourself, the role that you do at BSS and what it actually entails? Yes, well, thank you for having me. Um, it's I think this is an area that's not very well known yet in the building industry, and it's actually a very important one. So I'm really happy to be here sharing some of that information today. Uh, so my name is Anthea. I've been at BSS for maybe seven years now. I started here as an inspector, uh, as a building consultant and working in, in dilapidation reports. And so I've done a lot of on the ground work. I think I'm up over 4,000 reports. Um, Yes, so there's a bit of experience there. And um, now I'm managing our team. We've grown exponentially in the last um, year and a half, really. We've doubled our inspection rate. And so um, I'm now training and managing our team and and also sort of project managing some of our big projects. That's fantastic. I always love, you know, the the industry is still so male dominated. It's always exciting to meet women who are in roles like yours, really helping to uh, create the culture and the methods and the processes by which we do work really well. So I I love I love um, being able to bring women like you to the undercover architect community as well. So really enjoy it. I really enjoy being out on site and. Um, working with the teams out there as well as um, working with uh, project teams and offices and stuff. So I'm, yeah, I feel very lucky. Yeah. Yeah. And with 4,000 reports under your belt, I'm sure there's a lot of experience to pass on to those that are coming through and, and uh, working in the business and those kinds of things as well. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, can you actually take us through what a dilapidation report actually is and what it seeks to achieve? Like what's the point of actually getting one for your project? 
firstly, I just there are two reasons people usually get a dilapidation report. Either it's being flagged as a requirement built by the building surveyor, so it um, comes under the protection works and a, um, a property owner or the builder has to get it done as, a, um, as part of their protection works notice. Or we've got the other side where people like to do it for due diligence. They just want to um, communicate with their neighbours that the project's getting started and that they value their neighbour's property just as much as they value their own and um, get that report done early. And then that sort of um, stops any confusion or to and froing throughout the building process. And um, it just creates a very clear starting point. And are you generally finding that it's something that people are getting of, it's for neighbours' properties, it's not so much for their own or what, what are you seeing in yes. that regard? Yeah, so usually it's for the neighbouring properties. Um, occasionally we're doing existing condition reports on a person's property if some's remaining, if a section of the build is remaining, if it's heritage listed or um, they're just doing an extension, the builder will sometimes be required to have it for insurance purposes. Or they'll just say, let's let's get it done so we're all on the same page and you can't say that we've, you know, damaged all the floorboards in the corridor when they were already in bad condition, that sort of thing. So, um, yes, it's um, – but the majority is doing all the neighbouring properties, whether they're apartment buildings, single houses, um, council assets like a footpath or a laneway, um, that's usually what we're out there doing. Gotcha. And for those who are in other states, a building surveyor is the professional that's responsible for signing off the building approval or building permit. So also building certifier in some other locations. Um, and uh, the Protection Act is obviously something that is part of that uh, DA process where people are um, sometimes conditioned to uh, be aware of what they need to do for those surrounding assets, as you mentioned. So it might be a neighbour's home or it might be something something else that needs to be protected as part of the works. I know, for example, in New South Wales, you often find it with a lot of the inner city suburbs where there's semis or terrace houses as well, where there's actually shared walls and shared structure. The dilapidation report becomes really critical and and my experience with dilapidation reports even extends to uh, when we've done large residential developments through when I worked at Mervac um, and we had a neighbor's home um, he was an architect and he knew that there was going to be piling going on right next door to his property and his property structure was slightly different to what we were proposing for those neighboring homes and so he as part of the DA conditions um, uh, presented to council as part of his objection that he wanted a dilapidation report done of his property and then we needed to put um, vibration monitors and all sorts of things on his property to be able to monitor vibrations during construction so that any um, if anything was over a particular level and damage occurred to his property, he had some records for that. So it is really interesting because obviously, you know, our home is generally our largest asset and, and we can't control if a neighbor's doing work to their place. But to know that, that this is something that can actually occur, do you see, do you ever see, um, you know, people getting in touch with you and saying, oh, look, I'm, I'm not conditioned to do it. Um, my neighbor's particularly pedantic or they're a particularly, you know, uh, litigious person. Um, and I'm just going to do this to, to keep them out of my hair, just so that I know that this is going to be okay. You know, we've got evidence if anything goes pear shaped. Absolutely. And like my recommendation is, everybody get it set down before anybody steps on site 
Um, often we come in after demolition, so the builder will do it, but the demolition company won't. And we can already see that there may have been a fence damage and there's nothing we can do about that. We can only document what we see when we're there. So, and it's definitely my, my <laughs> opinion that everybody get it done straight away because then nobody can, it just takes out that angst because what happens with our process is if somebody rings in and said, I've had the pre-construction dilapidation report done and I've noticed some changes, we'll go out and do a post-construction. So we'll wait until construction's completed and then we'll, uh, we've got a new app now that um, we can uh, identify if there's been any change with the original report and then um, flag if we notice there's any movement or damage or anything like that. And then if we can't identify if it's for the works or maybe there's been an issue and we think a stormwater might have broken and it could be to that, not the building works, we might then recommend an engineering report where an engineer will go out there and really look at the whole picture and come with um, you know, more of that engineering background to help resolve it. Well, whereas if you don't have those two reports and you have to bring in an engineer, well, the builder will bring in this engineer and then the neighbouring property will bring in this engineer and you'll get two different versions and a lot more money, whereas it could have all been you know, cut off earlier. It's like navigating an insurance claim, isn't it? So (laughs) now who can actually create the dilapidation report? I often get questions. Does it need to be a structural engineer? As you mentioned, does it need to be a, a, you know, a qualified building inspector? Is it, you know, just a general inspection service? Like, is there any legal requirements and what are your recommendations in that regard? Yeah. So um, under the Building Act and um, other um, standards, there's actually no, sorry, certification. Um, for a building consultant, there's no, they don't need to be registered, but um, it says a um, suitably qualified inspector. While we've, and everybody can interpret how that, that how they want, but at BSS Group, we that is a minimum of ten years experience in the relevant industry and a qualification within the industry. So in my team, we have um, architects, engineers, um, building designers. At, yeah, I think that's the spread. Um, but everybody hasn't just come out of university. They've worked in their industry. So they are familiar with what may cause a certain defect. And um, we're very familiar with the names of everything in a, in a building. So we can get through really quickly because we don't want to spend half a day in someone's home. It's a real inconvenience. So um, we try and get in and out as quickly as we can. Mm. Gotcha. And yeah. I can imagine that experience really makes a difference then in say for example it's been conditioned as part of a council DA and you're going into the neighbor's property I'm just wondering uh we'll get into the into the detail of what a dilapidation report includes in a minute but do you find that people are misinterpreting how much detail needs to be included or is it is it you know in terms of that training and that experience of the person creating the report like what what do they have to see and how how much they have to really understand, I suppose, in terms of people assessing if they're getting the right person to do this job for them? Sure. So um, we always say you want photos that show detail, not overall detail. You don't want just a photo of a room because in that photo you can actually see if there's a crack bottom left of the window. 
you actually want a, a photo of that crack. So you want high level detail. And for privacy reasons, we don't take overall photos. We think it's really important that uh, we maintain the homeowner's privacy and respect that privacy. So our photos are quite zoomed in. So unless you're reading the whole report, you actually wouldn't know where a photo was. So we have our photo, we identify which room it's in, where it is in the room, and then what the defect is. Yeah, so the professional really needs that eye for detail, don't they, to be able to zero in on those, you know, that crack beside the window frame or the small kind of, um, you know, problem that's down at the skirting board level or those kinds of things. Yeah, and, you know, if a a floor is falling away to the northeast corner of the room, you won't pick that up in a photo. So you actually, it's just about making sure that you've captured enough detail while still maintaining privacy. Can we go into more detail about what that process is of creating the dilapidation report? So somebody calls you and says, I've been conditioned in my DA to get a dilapidation report for the three neighbours around me, or they're um, wanting to do it just as a point of risk management. What are the next steps then? And what does that look like in terms of you working with them as a consultant? Yeah, sure. So we'd get an inquiry and we put together a scope of work. So we highlight what we're inspecting. And, um, you know, sometimes it might just be the garage because the house is well well away from any work. So we send up a marked up, send out a marked up scope and a quote so everybody knows what we're inspecting. And then we ask to take care of the booking process just because we are independent and we want the homeowners to know that, you know, we're not on anyone's side. So we'll contact them, explain what our process is. And then we'll book them in usually within a week of getting approval for the quote. And um, then we send an inspector out and um, they'll usually start at the front door and just work their way around the house internally and then externally. And then our report's ready in 48 hours. Boom. Gotcha. And we're going to include a sample report in the resources for this episode. So you can go to the resources and check that out. But can you just outline how the report is sort of laid out and and how much information it actually includes? Because I've read a fair few dilapidation reports in my time. Some of them are pretty scant. Some of them are like, you know, the building inspection reports that you get during the process of purchasing a property. You know, when you get that building inspection done as part of your your due diligence on a property, some of them are much more detailed um, and far more thorough. You know, what should people kind of be wanting to achieve and see in their dilapidation report in terms of that detail? Yes. So we don't, pick up everything so we're just picking up damage so um we if we'll usually take a few more photos along the boundary with the works but we're not going to document every single part of the building because um a it would take too long and then it becomes you know a a very costly exercise whereas these are accessible we're just walking into each room and saying there's a crack there or there's no defect in this room. And we so we've done a sweep around the room and we've said, what's in that room? And then it can be compared back to. So if there was a crack, has it increased by how much? Let's compare back. Or there was no defect in that room and now there is. So we know that um, we've got that reference back. Mm. So our reports, um, we Sometimes we can't get access to a room, so we'll identify if we haven't been able to get access and why. Um, That might be a locked garage and somebody's lost the key or uh, there's a sleeping child. And people get a bit worried that we might have missed our room. But with 
a single story residential property or a double story, if you've captured 95% of the property, you've got a good idea of what's happening in there. And so it's okay that we don't have that one room. Ideally, you get to every room, but you know you can't always manage that. And so we're just, um, and then we're talking about what the construction materials are. And then we do a brief summary once we've finished the inspection. So we'll say, uh, look, the property's in overall good condition, but there's minor cracking to the concrete driveway externally and internally the concrete garage floor, something like that. And those would be the areas that really stood out in the report. So it's just a brief summary. And then the, uh, the next stage of the report is the photos, the description. And, um, you know, we talk about things up to a mill. So, or a hairline is less than a mill. So we might say hairline crack, um, top left of bedroom door, and then, and it extends 300 mil. So that's kind of the detail that we, we're going into and we like to see and what I would recommend because if you don't have that level of detail, you can't identify if there's been any change. Do you find that the inspectors are walking in and saying, well, I'm going to look at this with the fact that construction is going to take place next door. So that's why I don't necessarily need to document everything in the room. I'm just documenting the things that I know can, a construction project next door will potentially impact. Like how... No, so we're picking up um, any damage in the room. So say it's a lounge and there's a fireplace, we'll look to see if there's cracking to the um, fireplace tiles and grouts or brickwork if there's bricks there. We'll be um, looking to see whether um, cornices and architraves and skirtings, there's any movement there because that's quite a common thing with um, you know mouldings in the corner at the mitres. And so we'll, we're not thinking of it in regards to what could next door damage we're, we're thinking of it as what's here right now let's get that in the report and then we can refer back to that if needed gotcha. mm. okay and sorry the hairline cracks up to a millimeter and then are there different like is there different terminology used for things that for cracks of different size and things like that or that um no so we'd 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 say it would if it was two mil or three mil um like the cracks inside tend to sit around hairline to three mil. Um, anything bigger than that is, you know, you know, it usually is being patched and painted. Um, and then, yeah, we say approximately because, you know, 1.5 mil, we're not going to get down into the 0.5s of mils. It's just, it's just a gen, like it's enough for us to know if there's been a change. We've got the photos, we've got the text. And we can look at them both together and say, yep, that looks to me like it's changed. Mm. Okay. And do you, does it, does the process differ if it's been conditioned by council versus a somebody's just requesting it for their neighbour? No, not for us. Um, we do a lot of works for major roads projects and level crossing removal. And uh, they have a different name for their reports, but we still are doing the same level of detail because we still want the same outcome. We want to be able to identify if there's been a change um, for both parties, not just for our client, but for the homeowners as well. Like it's there to protect both of them. And who actually needs to get the report? Is it something that the client just can keep to themselves, the person's person that's paid for it? Or is, you know, does it need to be shared with the neighbour as well? Uh, so under the protection works, if that's what's triggered it, um, the owner has to sign off on it. So they definitely have to have a report. There's nothing legally that says 
a homeowner has to it can get a copy of the report if it's just out of the, it's being commissioned due to due diligence but we in the office have a very strong stance on this that if um if somebody's letting us into their home they have a right to that report so we always tell people yes it is you should be asking that if you're booking it in and saying, will I get a copy of this report? Because um, it's your home and they're photos of your home. So you we believe you should get a copy. Mm. Have you found that neighbours have refused you access and they don't want one done? Uh, yes. Uh, we A lot of people don't understand the process. So um, we take our time to explain it and explain, A, that uh, we'll be respecting their privacy and, B, that it protects both parties. So... Usually once we've explained it, um, most people book in. Um, we've had a couple of people that have said, actually, we don't want you in our house, like inside the property, but you're welcome to come outside. Um, so one of our, our hardest things is getting tenants to pass on the information to the homeowners to then get in contact to book in. So um, that's just one of the challenges for rental rent, rented properties because we just have postal addresses usually unless we're provided with phone numbers. So um, we just send out the uh, a letter in the post. We'll, usually, we'll send out three letters. There'll be an initial letter, a reminder letter, and then a final letter with a cutoff date. And um, we hope people respond after the first letter, but not always. <laughs> okay. Yep. And do you find that uh, there's times where the neighbour will disagree with what's been reported or they'll... I can imagine sometimes people might get offended if they think their property is in really good condition and you're pointing out all these cracks or they think that their property is actually potentially in worse condition than it is reported. Do you do you find that that can happen? Yes. So often um, when we're out inspecting, that's a question we get asked. Um, it feels like you're taking a lot of photos. I thought my house was in quite good condition. And I, I've always said, and I maintain this, I've never been to a house with no defects, even a new build that or damage defects and damage um even a new build that hasn't been lived in i will find a few things just because um timber moves by nature um and so it will acclimatize to its environment so there'll be separation at mitres and um you know uh ground levels settle outside so there might be cracking at the concrete joints and things like that to the paving so I always reassure people that it feels like we're taking a lot of photos, but that's just because, you know, houses by the nature move and we're just capturing it all. So people are pretty good about it as a whole. And I can imagine too, like the works along the boundary line and things like looking at boundary fencing and retaining walls and those kinds of things um, probably becomes pretty critical in your dilapidation reports. Does it become an issue of how you report it if that, retaining wall doesn't look fit for purpose or it's a really old retaining wall or are you just looking at it really factually and stating that's that's what it is yes so we're, we're not looking at any structural integrity unless that we can see that it's damaged um that's not up to us to comment on but um if we see a pergola that's attached to a boundary that um they're demolishing a garage on the other side we'll definitely point that out and say, you know, it's fixed to your wall that's coming down, just note that. And, um, but it's not, we're not commenting on your pergola actually looks like it's about to fall down. 
<laughs> that's not up like it's not up to us to say how it was built and whether it's um, whether it should have or shouldn't have had a permit. That we're not commenting on that. Yeah. Do you find that neighbours, because you are professionals with experience and expertise in these areas, do you find that neighbours are drilling you for those that kind of information anyway? If they're there whilst you're doing the inspection, like how does that sort of conversation? Yeah. Roll so out? we have um, we have a very um, strict rule on that that we're not there to offer that kind of advice, and we can um, inform the neighbour where they might could go to find that information, but we're not there in that capacity, and it's it's quite. Um, Almost, it's a bit dangerous for us to be commenting on that because um, we're not doing a full report on the structural integrity of something. So for us just to say, oh, yeah, it looks like your goal is pulling the brickwork down, well, that could open a whole bag of worms. So we apologise and say we're really sorry, but we can't comment on that. That That's not the capacity that we're hearing today, but perhaps call a building an engineer and get a report done or something like that so yeah we just have to be a bit careful um because uh the same thing with people asking us what's happening with the works next door often we don't know i mean we're doing i don't know 20 to 30 reports a day at the moment and so we're just told works are happening there we don't get to see the plans and it's actually quite good because we can stay impartial we don't we don't need that information to do a good job because we're doing the a consistent job on each house. We don't, it's not going to make a difference to us whether it's a single story or a double story or a townhouse. We still want the same quality of report each time. That's a really interesting point because I would have assumed that you would have been sent the drawings uh, of the, uh, you know, that it has has been submitted to council mm. as part of assessing the neighbouring property. So you've got no clue what is actually proposed. You're just conducting the dilapidation report irregardless of yeah. the level of construction. Yes, yeah, sometimes we know and that's, you know, it just becomes part of our quoting documents. But um, often the inspectors actually won't know. They'll just be told this is where you have to be. Um, at 8am <laughs> and that and the, they have to be there on time I'm very strict about that <laughs> because people shouldn't have to wait um, and then yes they'll just do the report so they'll know where the building works are happening so they'll know to take additional photos of those boundaries and maybe that that elevation of the house facing that work but um, other than that they, they're not uh, aware of what's happening there. Mm. Gotcha. And do different councils condition different sort of information in the dilapidation reports or is it pretty blanket that dilapidation reports always include the same kind of information and it's really just the scope of where the dilapidation report needs to extend to that might change? Yes, yeah, it's the later, the latter of that. It's, we haven't had a council tell us they need uh, more information or less information. Um, Vic Roads, the road body in Victoria, they... Um, they require a, um, a detailed drawing of where the photos are taken. But other than that, um, everybody else gets the same report. Actually, and on that, can, sorry, can I, um, I think it's really important, well, VSS, and I'm sure other companies do it as well, but we don't do two reports. The homeowner and the client get the identical report. We don't take additional photos and hide them or anything. It's just one report. So that you're comparing apples for apples. That's, I mean, that's an important point for integrity, I think, isn't it? Because if somebody is saying, oh, look, we'll do a report for you as the homeowner so you know what the property's really like, but we'll only give the neighbour some scant information so that they can't 
there's not a lot that they can claim against, you know, so that, you know, that's that, yeah, immediately that is a really great red flag that it's not, not a, not a company that's operating with integrity and you do want just everybody to have the same information so that everybody, yeah. yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And if it's a public asset that's next door, so say somebody lives next door to, I don't know, a substation or a council building or uh, a park or something like that, how how do you find the relationship um, and the the process? Does it change at all apart from the, I suppose, contacting that person to get, you know, permission if you need to do get inside that place? Is there any kind of bigger responsibility for a public piece of infrastructure next door to a house versus a neighbour next to a house? No, because um, that's still an asset. It's still owned by someone and um, it still has to maintain in the same condition throughout the build. So um, we're just doing this, yeah, the same process that we would for a neighbour as we would for a government building or a council asset building or property. Mm. And you mentioned you that your recommendation is that this happens well before any demolition and uh, even I imagine like the establishment of site fencing or anything like that, like literally the the before the builder is sort of mobilizing on site at all that the idea is that the dilapidation report gets done when everything is still sort of status quo and as it is prior to construction yes yeah I think um once the contract sign and the builder knows when they're going to be on site I think it should be done then because it also it does two things it notifies your neighbors that um building works are beginning and you're just letting them know hey we're about to start and um, you know we're doing this in goodwill or part of our protection works and then it also protects everybody so it's yeah I think it's very important yeah it's a good point isn't it because it's often I think people would forget or they they would they'd wait until demolition had occurred and then um, bring it in but there's there's I think people underestimate that once they sign their contract um, that there's not going to necessarily be work starting on their project the following day, that there can still be, you know, a two, three, four-week lag between uh, when that contract is signed, when all of the contractual processes are enacted in terms of paying insurance and, you know, whatever this, the particular state requires, getting stamped drawings and those kinds of things. That's a perfect opportunity for you to get that person doing the dilapidation reports lived inside. And I think to also, if you know that it is something that you a want to do for your own risk management uh, to get that done of your neighbours, or b you know it's something that's conditioned in your development application, which you would have had some time prior to this point of signing your contract, that actually booking ahead of time and getting that done early and just getting it banked away is a is a really good idea. I completely agree. <laughs> <laughs> and. In terms of the legal implications of a dilapidation report, can we dive into that? Because I think that I think that people's experience of this, if they haven't understood what it could be like to have this document and for their neighbour to have like a point of reference of this is what my house was like before construction started, they probably would think of it like any insurance ex- in, in experience that they might have had or, you know, prior and post a particular like a storm event or something like that. But it can be quite a different process, can't it? How do you see this legally playing out for people and how, how does that dilapidation report play into legal conversations about you know, da- construction causing damage to a neighbouring property? Well, we would usually say 
if we get a homeowner call us, have you spoken to the neighbour or the builder? Um, would you like us to on your behalf? And then um, we would itemise their concerns and that is when a post-construction report would, be, would come in. Um, it's very unusual for a dilapidation report to end up in court because there would usually be a lot of other steps after us. So we form part of that, but we form the information that then decides whether it needs a specialist report done, a plumbing report, a roofing report, an engineering report, and then that would decide at that point. But um, the neighbours can definitely use it to prove that there has been a change and then engage other consultants to then escalate that if they needed it to get remedial works. And is that generally how it happens? They they compare what their house is doing now compared to the dilapidation report and then is it up to the neighbour to pursue that? Like how how does that sort of, if you're, if you're the homeowner who's done your renovation or new build and you've had to get your dilapidation report done for your neighbour and then you've finished your project and the neighbour looks at their house and says, well, that crack is open from one mil to five mil or, um, you know, that retaining wall used to be in good condition and now it's not. What do you as a homeowner have a responsibility to kind of help the neighbor through that, or how, how do you sort of see that that working? Yes, yeah. well, yes, it's very tricky because it's different with everyone. A builder might go, Yes, we acknowledge straight away that our works have damaged that retaining wall, we'll send some people over to fix it, and that's an ideal situation. Um, a builder might claim, No, 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 it wasn't us, and then unfortunately, that means that the neighbor has to then. Um, prove that it was them and that might mean them getting a report and taking it to the, the builder's insurance company and just you know escalating it that way it's very rare for there to be damage we've found in our reports um just purely because builders don't you know they don't want to cause damage they don't want to have to pay for damage so the, we find the builders that we're doing these for are the good ones because they're doing the right thing and they're getting the reports done. So um, we have a very, very low rate of people calling in. I, you know, it, it could be as low as like three to five percent of our reports, even lower. Um, and most of those times they're resolved before they don't escalate. And those that do escalate would go to the engineer, and an engineer would say, actually, you're liable for the damage, or no that illegal pergola has actually done that damage, that sort of thing. And so it actually really sort of puts an end to it. Um, it's the ones that sort of drag on that make it very difficult for both parties actually, where they can't sort of have a real line in the sand of where it happened. And that is usually the ones that didn't get the initial report done. It's interesting that, so it's actually part of the builder's process then, that the builder is the one that it's almost risk management for the builder, not so much for the homeowner. Is that how you see it working? Because the builder wants to demonstrate that they've run their site properly, that they haven't caused damage to the surrounding properties, part of the Protection Act for, you know, them conducting their work properly rather than the homeowner. Because I can imagine a lot of homeowners think, oh gosh, this is just another headache that I have to worry about. I have a neighbor who's very particular. You know, how, how does, for a homeowner feeling anxious about this, is it is it more about holding the builder to account for how they're managing the construction process and protecting the adjacent properties around that site? Yes, yeah, because it's not the homeowner. It's, 
yeah, we'll call them the homeowner and the neighbour. It's not the homeowner doing the damage. It's it will be the demolition company or one of the trades on site that's knocked something or the piling that they might be doing. So it's not the homeowner's responsibility. It's whoever's on site. So they need to take responsibility for it. I think that's a really great mindset shift for people to be aware of that this actually gives them a pathway to manage their own risk as the person paying the builder and paying these these subbies and trades to come to their site and and having some documentation that holds them to account for the work that they're doing and how they're how they're managing the work on the actual project particularly I think if you're living in more dense locations where your neighbors are a lot closer to you or as you say you know in an apartment building or something like that. We have a project on at the moment where uh, they demolished a big old 1970s apartment block and the houses around it are very close. And um, so we did the pre-construction, uh, yeah, the pre, well, we did a pre-demolition report actually, so a dilapidation report, but we did it pre-demolition. And then we're going out post-demolition before construction starts. So they can actually identify if anything's happened with the de demolition company before the builder comes so it's protecting the builder again and then we'll go out at the end and just sign off that the builder hasn't done any damage so if it's a big demolition or big construction and you've got neighbors very closely um that's a very good way to go as well just throughout the project mm. and does does damage in air quotes also include things like dust from demolition landing on somebody's property or anything like that or if, is it really structural and uh, cosmetic damage that might be happening to cracking of mortar and those kinds of things? Um, we always say if you have any concerns call us and so um, some people might call in and say look there's a, a huge amount of dust it's all over my windows and we'll just say we'll pass that on to the project team or our client and and we can't do anything about it, but at least we're letting them know and we document the date we've let them know so that, you know, we're trying to make sure everybody's doing the right thing and everybody feels heard because often you don't know where you can give this information to, you know. Um, somebody had a roof tile from a demolition. It didn't damage their property, but it fell into their backyard and the builders weren't on site yet and the demolition company had left and they had no one to ring. So... They called us and just said, hey, look, this has happened. Can someone come and clean it up? Well, we can't, we're not going to because that's not our responsibility, but we can definitely pass that information on. And um, we find that builders and homeowners are very responsive to that because everybody wants, most people want to do the right thing. And these are going, usually going to be people's neighbours for a long time. That's, I mean, that's fantastic to point that out because because I imagine that can be quite reassuring for the neighbour to actually have someone to call in those instances or for them to also not necessarily want to approach the builder on site. I know that there's lots of people who don't like having, they, they see that as a confrontational experience that they don't want to have. So mm -hmm. to have a third party that they can call to pass that information on, do you find that you that that's a lot of that that is makes up a chunk of your work is being that go-between or do you find that it's quite rare that that sort of thing is happening um we might get two or three calls a week so not a lot considering our volume but um yeah I think like I said I think some people just need somewhere to call 
so that they feel heard and um, and it gives them a next step. And in regards to that initial uh, example that I pointed out, do you, so in that instance, for example, the neighbour conditioned uh, getting the dilapidation report and then because of that dilapidation report, we then had uh, a requirement to include vibration monitors on their home so that whilst uh, the contractor was piling, they could always check those vibration monitors to see uh, that they weren't exceeding a certain level. Do you also see dilapidation reports then bringing about specific recommendations for neighbours' property or is it not something that's so significant? I mean, that was a development of 140-odd houses in an apartment yeah. building happening on the riverfront next to somebody else's place. How do you sort of see that rolling out? Yes, so that usually would be part of their protection works and that would already be um, outlined their requirements of what they would be needing to do. So um, we're not commenting on that in our report. So it's really interesting. So for people to understand that the dilapidation report is literally an observation and a statement of facts. It's not about recommendations. It's not about uh, solving problems. It's not, it's literally understanding that this this document this report that gets created just records a moment in time for the property that is neighboring the property that's going to be uh having construction works done on it because i i don't think that a lot of people would think that that's what a dilapidation report would be i think that a lot of people would think of it more like a building inspection report where i know that when you get a building inspection report you're often then being told well this thing has to be fixed in six months or 12 months or 18 months you know it's quite a different thing isn't it Yes, yeah. No, it's just a timestamp of, uh, you know, this is where it was before works began so that we can come back and say, no, it's still all good. There's been no change. Um, on that, I often say that um, if your works get pushed out and you have had a dilapidation report, I would recommend not leaving it for more than four months before getting another one. So, um, so you sent us out there and then you got held, your builder got held up on another job and couldn't start on site. We would recommend um, doing one at a change of season, for example, because, well, in Melbourne, I'm not sure about up north, but, you know, the ground changes, it dries out, it gets wet, there's movement, a lot can happen to a whole property, really. So if you had a report done four or five months ago, the condition of the house might be quite different. Not hugely, but the only enough. defect, yeah, enough that um, it could affect you or impact you later on. Mm. That's fascinating. So four months is your general recommendation if it's yes, more yeah. than four months. Yeah, wow. Mm. That's really worth remembering for people. that Because I suppose that's the thing. You could have a neighbour arguing over whether a crack, a crack was a hairline or if it's one and a bit mill. And the, the, and the construction project, but it could actually just be a change in seasons and the level of moisture in the ground or a particularly rainy season or a particular dry season as well that could have caused that. Or they might have had a tree cut down and then be claiming, oh, we've had a job recently where the, the neighbour uh, installed a pool, installed, <laughs> put in a pool, <laughs> <laughs> um, over the length of the project next door in, in between it all. And then they were claiming there was a bit of damage to their paving. And we we're like, well, it's very hard to identify because you've had machinery in here. Yeah, that's it makes it quite, there are some times where things like that come up and that's quite tricky. And you just have to say, okay, well, let's look further out than the paving. Has there been any change to the house? 
uh, joining the paving. There's no cracking, there's no movement. It's highly unlikely if it's, it's centered in that area that it's been caused by the works over here. Do you have any other examples um, that, that sort of illustrate some of the ideas that we've discussed? I imagine that you've actually probably got a library of... <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been called out quite a few times uh, where neighbours have thought there's been change and they just haven't read the initial report. <laughs> so um, we go out and we're like, oh, yep, no, see, it's this long still. Um, which I guess is reassuring for them, but, it, you know, it's it can be a bit... Uh, hard for them to hear that when they because actually what happens is people feel movement houses move there's works next door you know there's builders moving trusses onto site with cranes so there can occasionally be vibrations and with road upgrades there's vibrations however houses are designed to take a little bit of movement and not change so people feel this and then look up and go oh my gosh there's a crack up there and actually, it was always there, but it's not often you look up. So um, we get a bit of that. I think it's really fascinating. And I really appreciate you going into so much detail with how this works. And also, I think, too, to explain the process of creating one isn't as obtrusive or um, or challenging for a neighbour to have done to their property and that it is about protecting risk for everyone involved. I think when our homes are such a significant asset, when the neighbours around us also have their significant assets as well, that thinking about this as part of if you are renovating or building in, an, in a more dense area, do you want to do this whether you're conditioned to or not, just to be able to um, have some certainty and reassurance I can also imagine where you might have neighbours that are um, are not too happy about the fact that you're renovating your project to actually say, look, hey, we want to get a dilapidation report done of your place before we start, just so that we know what it's like and we can make sure that nothing happens to it and we we are, you know, managing, uh, we understand that this is important and we want to take care of your property as much as, you know, through this process. So we are, we have a few people that um, the neighbours aren't doing a dilapidation report, so they take it on themselves to have one done, um, which, as you said earlier, you know, your, your home's your biggest asset usually, so um, it's a good idea. It's disappointing that the neighbour isn't doing it. You can always go to them with the quote and say, look, because you're building so close, we'd like to get this done. Um, are you willing to pay for it? And in goodwill, you hope they will. But if they don't, I still would recommend getting it done because you're protecting yourself. You can then go to them and say, look, you know, the uh, fence has subsided all the way along that boundary. Here's the photos to prove it. That's a really interesting point, actually. So you see that happening for, is there kind of a threshold where people get that done for themselves? Are they in a particular kind of property or how, how are you seeing homeowners kind of make that call for themselves if they know their neighbour's going to renovate or build? It's usually um, in a city where boundaries are very close and properties are on smaller blocks and they just know that, that often it's people who have recently renovated. So perhaps they're a bit more familiar with the process themselves and the impact it can have. But um, And they want to protect their asset, their newly renovated um, you know, building. Uh, they might be far enough away from the building works, you know, a couple of metres off the boundary, but they still know that they're in sort of an area that's got older style buildings and close together. And do you find that, because obviously there are some projects where 
there's no council approval required people are able, able to get through you know self-assessable or a complying development um, process and so the first kind of indication you know if they're neighbours that don't speak to each other the first indication that a neighbour might have that the project's even happening is that they start seeing site fencing going up mm. for construction do you see people getting in touch with you at that point panicking saying look I think I need to get this done I'm really frustrated nobody spoke to me about this I can't believe that the council isn't you know like do you see that ever happening in in people yeah Yep. Absolutely. And um, we, we're quite lucky. We have a lot of inspectors, so we can usually have someone out there the next day. And um, it's, yeah, it's, it's trying to get out there as quickly as possible before any works begin. That's really interesting. So if you're a, if you are seeing your neighbour start construction, it's not too late. You can still go about, turn it around quite quickly, get somebody out to do a dilapidation report and have that as some documentation for what your project, what your home was like before they started construction works, if you're concerned about it yes, uh, impacting yeah. them. Yeah. So yeah. did you have anything else to add, Anthea? We've been through quite a lot and I love that you've just shared so much detail, uh, but I just want to, I know that I've jumped around the questions a fair bit. So <laughs> I just want to make sure there wasn't anything that I missed or anything that you wanted to add. You know, the beginning of the building process is, you know it's quite scary for a lot of people and just protecting you every all parties at the beginning is the most important and um we see that quite a bit here at bss because we also do contract reviews for homeowners and we sit down and we say look before the project begins let's have a good look what's in the contract and make sure everybody's protected because ideally you're stopping things from happening as opposed to reacting to them happening and um yeah, I think the beginning of the process is the most important part to help that. Yeah, it's funny. The whole name dilapidation report sounds like something falling over, doesn't it? It's not. It's not a great name for what no. is actually like. A... I know. I'd quite like another name than dilapidation manager. It's like <laughs> surely there's something nicer out here, but I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, managing the things that are falling apart. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So thank you so much, Anthea, for your time. We'll include all of your contact details in the resources for this episode, plus the uh, sample report so that listeners can see that information. Um, it really, I think, um, understanding that the experience of the professional is going to make a difference to the quality of the report that you receive. It's challenging that it's not something that's legislated or licensed in terms of who physically has to do it for you. So I think really doing your due diligence on who is the who is the person that's going to come out and actually review the property so that you know that they know what to look for and they also don't overstep um, in terms of how they report that they are just reporting a point in time and what they factually see rather than in an interpretation. I know I've read enough uh, structural engineering insurance reports done on behalf of the insurer, the insurer and um, and they're terrible because they're always so, they're not impartially written at all. <laughs> so, so this is... Um, yeah, getting that impartial documentation is is so important. So thank you so much for your time, Anthea, and for sharing all of your knowledge and experience. I'm super grateful. I know this is going to be really, really helpful for the undercover architect community. So thanks so much. Oh, thank you for having me. It's fun to chat. 
I really hope that you enjoyed my conversation with Anthea and that it gave you a great understanding of what dilapidation reports actually are and when to get one. And it might be either for your own project, it might be for your neighbour's home, or it might be your own home in preparation for a work that your neighbour might be doing at their place. Now, if you'd like to see the sample dilapidation report that I mentioned in my chat with Anthea, you can access that plus a free downloadable transcript of this episode by heading to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 271. That's the numbers 271. So head there to that link. You can grab that. Plus you can find more helpful information related to this episode. I've included some extra resources and links for you that I know will support you in understanding this part of your project much more. Now, if you'd like some more structured help and guidance and to feel more confident and in control as you learn the steps from start to finish of your project journey and how to create a great home that you love living in, then Home Method is the place for you. Plus, you'll join a community of amazing and super informed homeowners on a similar journey to you. And you'll also be able to access my personalized help and support along the way. So you can find out more about my flagship online program, Home Method, by heading to homemethod.com.au. And the links are also on the website. As always, thank you for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until next time, bye.